Sunday, everybody, and welcome uh, to this episode of the Cinephiles Live here on the Cinephiles YouTube channel. I am the outlaw, John Roca, joined as always by my co-host, stunning Steve Morris. Steve, how are you feeling? How are you doing on this Sunday afternoon? I'm good. I am. It's hot uh, here in Los Angeles, and uh, I went out to the farmer's market today to buy Ooh. some melons, and I neglected to bring my hat. And bald <laughs> men, they got to wear a hat. So, but other than that, I'm doing good. You were you were caught red red headed, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, in, in that is exactly. I don't know if I got too burnt, but it was uh, yeah. Need a hat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we're here live today to have a fun conversation revisiting uh, 1985's uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, uh, directed by Tim Burton. His directorial debut, by the way, and this was also the debut of Danny Elfman as a film composer. And we'll get into some of that. We'll talk about some of the movie. We'll talk about Paul Rubin's life and career a little bit, our thoughts on that, uh, and also talk about the impact of this film. And if we think this thing still holds up, maybe our favorite parts, maybe the parts that don't hold up, um, and some of the influences of the film. And I've got some trivia and some, not trivia, but uh, some, some, I guess some facts about the movie, I guess, uh, to toss in as we go along in this conversation. So thank you all so much for joining us. I will pin... The Cinephiles YouTube, uh, Cinephiles Streamlabs address in the chat, but it is up there right above Steve and I's head in the middle. If you want to send in any support for us through Streamlabs or Super Chats, and if you haven't subscribed to our Patreon, that's above my head right up there, patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. Steve, you know, we've been doing a lot of new stuff on the Patreon, giving a lot of new benefits, and we've seen people taking advantage and moving up and jumping up and even becoming a part of our advisory board to help us uh dictate the direction of the uh, podcast and the show as we go forward it's been a good time it's it's you know what's funny about it is like you and i spent i don't know four months trying to figure out how we wanted to redo <laughs> yes. the uh the patreon and and what i didn't expect like i mean the goal was to really give back to the audience and yes. to help out you know to, to say thank you to the people that support us so much yeah i didn't know how i was going to have so much more fun for me with the new setup of the Patreon. I mean, obviously the advisory board's the biggest thing just because that's a joy to meet with every month, yeah. but also because of the ad-free versions of the show and the combined mm -hmm. versions of the show, there's so much more conversation going on on yeah. Patreon now, and it's so great to feel, it makes me feel part of the Cinephiles community, and I know it's that's what it's doing for our patrons, so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. We're having some great interactions, some great conversations, some fun back and forth. Of course, we should give love to Luke, uh, who Luke Leeson, who does our uh, social media stuff. He's uh, sparked a lot of conversation on uh, on the uh, Twitter there, an X formerly known as Twitter, and, and on Facebook sometimes as well. So, you know, it's, it's great stuff to uh, have more and more interactions uh, with you all. And we're seeing great responses from you all as patrons. So if you haven't joined the Patreon, trust me, it is well worth your time, well worth uh, whatever you can do to support the show at patreon.com uh, slash the cinephiles. Um, all right, well, let's get into Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Steve, uh, this has been the first time you've watched it in quite some time, if I remember correctly. So what are your thoughts initially about Pee-wee's Big Adventure? And when do you remember first watching it in your life? So I have a very specific memory of watching it in the movie theater in San Rafael, not at the Rafael, which is the nice theater, but the other theater that's sort of on the other side of 101 Freeway. Okay. Same movie theater that I saw revenge of the nerds it's so funny how <laughs> certain the certain movies you can just remember being in that theater yeah. i remember this i the the biggest thing i remember of course is 
I think what arguably could be the greatest jump scare in the history of cinema, <laughs> which is Large Marge. Large Marge. Because, yeah. and it will, I mean, I guess we'll talk about it, but yes, yeah. I remember it so strongly from that. And then, uh, well, I'll let you answer. Where, how did you first come to it? Oh, um, I'm sure I saw it in a movie theater uh, in Dale City, where I grew up in Virginia with a bunch of friends. Because I saw this trailer and I was like, oh, I've got to see this film. Something about this film is so weird and interesting and fun. And it's right around that sweet spot of being a teenager in high school at that time. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, let's go. Let's get, get a bunch of people together. And we went and saw it and had a really good time. And I just remember enjoying it. And it's always had like a, a special place in my heart. It's not a film I go back to and rewatch a lot, but it certainly left an impact. And of course, Paul Rubin's portrayal of Pee Wee Herman, bringing that character into our mainstream pop culture um, uh, understanding and a character that endured all the way up until his recent passing. So, yeah. Um, as far as how I reacted to it this time, it's true. I had not seen it in a really, really long time. And I'll let everyone in on a little behind the scenes moment of the cinephiles <laughs> is that we had talked about that this was going to be our next regular episode. Yes. So, and I was watching it and taking all of my copious notes and trying to write down everything that happens and everything that's said. And I'm typing along and about 25 minutes in, I just, I wasn't feeling it. I mean, I was, it's not that I didn't like it, but I just yeah. I don't know that I care about going moment by moment through this movie. Yeah. And it's funny. And, and I feel mixed about that now because basically where I, I texted John and said, Hey, what would you think about switching this to a live show was right when Peewee starts to go on the adventure. So the, yeah. End, and he's, and it's right when he heads off to look for the bike. And from that point forward, the movie got so much better for me and just the, the whimsy and the silliness and each goofy little adventure on his odyssey just got better and better. And so I, part, I'm really happy we're doing it as a live show because I yeah. feel like it fits really well. But I also go like, by the end, I was like, you know what? That was actually really fun. It was a yeah. really fun movie. Yeah, I watched it yesterday afternoon uh, and it was a perfect film to watch on a Saturday afternoon, sitting on my recliner, leg up, legs up, and the air, uh, both of my fans going on me, uh, keeping me cool. <laughs> And just like, you know, disappearing into a fun little film about a guy who is uh, uh, is the best definition of the term man child. And yeah. he is he is adult enough to handle handle whatever's happening in his world. But he is very childish in how he approaches the world because of all the things that are in his house and all the way little equipment, little functions. And, you know, this is right around back to the future time. You could definitely see some connective tissues sure. there. Uh, his suit that he's wearing, you could argue, is probably influenced by. Adventures of Buckaroo Bunzai, which had been 84 the, the year before this film. So there's a lot of like right at the right 1980s time for this film when you watch it now. And there's, you know, there's a very uh, fun time throughout. The adventures work. They're not overdone. They don't feel shoved in for me for the most part. The dotty stuff is what it is. And I can understand if people might have complaints about that. It's certainly uh, a weird thing with great, great voiceover actress Elizabeth Daly, now E.G. Daly. Um, but Overall, I came away from it being like, this was just so much fun. Uh, and to remember uh, how much joy he took in bringing this character to life. And what was great is he's not one of these people that turned on his character. You know what I'm saying? You know, even Shatner, who we revere so greatly, uh, you with Enterprise Incidents and both of us as Star Trek fans. Um, at times, it, you know, when he was getting frustrated with being attached to Captain Kirk, uh, had some strong comments about it and feelings about it but of course came around and certainly embraces the character now but like Pee Wee or Paul Rubens never turned on Pee Wee Herman 
they may have been frustrated by it, may have felt caged in by it, which may have been what led to what happened in the theater uh, when he got arrested for that. But in the end, he's always spoken positively about Pee Wee Herman as a character. And watching it this time around, you can really feel the magic of this movie still. And it's funny, Steve, see the influences of what Steve Burton, uh, sorry, Tim Burton, not Steve Burton, Tim Burton is, is going to do in his later films. You can see Batman oh, yeah. Returns influences. You can see um, Beetlejuice influences. You can see a lot of that throughout this film when you watch it. Well, I think that's one of the most interesting things is it's this pairing. I don't think we'd be talking about this movie today without Tim Burton. And I don't know that yeah. we'd be talking about Tim Burton without Pee Wee Herman because right. it was such a like perfect beginning for his style. And mm -hmm. I want to talk about this character, Pee Wee Herman, because I've been thinking about it. Yeah. Is first of all, one of the big differences watching it this time was instead of being a teenager when I first saw it, right. I'm a parent. And right. was so, oh, yeah. what hit so hard watching it, it was just like, oh, Pee Wee Herman thinks like a child. Mm -hmm. Exactly with the, the jealousy and the and the uh, totally unrealistic thinking and the silliness yeah. and the self-aggrandizement and yes. the ego and also the sort of just crazy belief that things are going to work out. It's like it's it's it is a child's fantasy of this adult character living. It's an adult character living a child's fantasy life. And it's yeah. not like Pee Wee is just a nice guy. Yeah. Pee-wee is not a nice guy. Yeah. Like Pee-wee is, we like him, but I was thinking too, like, you know, we did Modern Times years ago. Mm. The Tramp, he is not actually just a nice guy. No, he's the a very tramp, guy. Yeah, he's, very, he's got some evil in him. And when we did, you know, I know you're not the fan that I am, but when we did Police Story and we, you mm. look at Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan is not a nice guy. Yeah. Jackie Chan is jealous and selfish and all, you know, and needs to have his comeuppance. And it's like, and so it suddenly went like, oh, there are these 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 actors who have created these characters yeah. that they live in, you know, for many movies who are not who who we really, really like and are really, really funny, but they're also complicated and film filled with human foibles, you know? Yeah. Well, there's a prism with which you can watch this film where he is not the hero of this film because he, as you said, he is um, overly, he has an overdeveloped sense of attachment to that bike. As you mm -hmm. said, he's, um, you know, overvalued that overvalued himself in that way. Uh, and then he's dismissive of Dottie when she tries to help him a number yep. of times. He's rude to Dottie. He takes the advantage of people's connection with him Uh by shoving them into a room for three hours to go over mm -hmm. all the different ways he wants to get the bike. It doesn't even get to the point after three hours, then uh, runs off, goes to the Alamo, and he is just on his own trying to make this all happen. Then when he sees where his bike is, he s sneaks his way onto a studio set and then steals the bike back from a young kid who had gotten the bike uh, and leads and goes on a crazy chase about this which of course eventually leads to them making a movie about it but he is very so singularly focused um that he is he can be seen in a negative way but he does make a call to apologize to Dottie, not necessarily to go out with Dottie, because i think as you said he's still a child so in that way he even sees girls as like ew ick yes. um and so you know you see that but he is apologizing to her and saying you know i i was selfish and i you know he learned a lesson so there's an arc for Pee Wee Herman that I think works throughout the movie, which is really funny to consider when you look at what happens to him. Well, it's funny, and 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 I don't know if this is some of the the notes that you have, but mm. you know, it's like the script, which is written by 
Paul Rubens and Phil Hartman, the great, the great late Phil Hartman. Right. Um, I and, know that they and Michael Varhol, three three right. screenwriters for this one, yeah. And, and I, I know that they went and they got Sid Field's book, which yep. is the classic book on screenwriting. And they're like, oh, so we need a MacGuffin. That's the bike. He loses the bike on page 30. He finds out where it is on page 60. Mm -hmm. And what I think is, but the funniest, and this is why I brought it up, is that we've talked before on the cinephiles of the other, one of the other great screenwriting books, which is Save the Cat, which is mm. where I need to have my character do something good at the beginning of the movie so people like him. And I've already expressed many times on the cinephiles, I yes. don't quite think that's true. But what I think is hilarious is this movie, they save the cat at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the, the very end, we go, just in case you thought this guy was a jerk, and just yeah. in case you, you know, he caused all this wreckage on the studio, he's going to save some cats. It's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to talk about with this movie. Uh, so let's open the door to the stuff you're bringing up here. Yeah, th those. that's what they did. It's a great story about the um, script. It was originally going to be based as a, he originally started writing the script as a remake of Pollyanna. And mm. it, when it was, he was on the Warner Brothers set. And when he was writing the script, he saw how many people had bikes on the Warner Brothers set. And that's what changed his mind about it. So this film is, in essence, a, and this is going to be crazy for people to consider, this is, in essence, a nod to The Bicycle Thieves, the 1948 Italian classic mm. film. It was it was influenced by that. So, yeah. So people, you know, you can dismiss a film, but you don't if you don't look at it, and analyze it and, and see where it's coming from. The art of the um, uh, the influence behind it, I think you can miss out on, on a few things because that film is about the main characters who have their bikes stolen. The police don't seem to care about it or and it's, none of the friends want to offer much help. So they they consult a fortune teller to let them know where the bike is. So that's pretty much lifted from that uh, uh, sequence that when you see the film and two things here, this is Tim Burton's feature film directorial debut. Um, he had got it because Shelley Duvall, he was screened Frank and Weenie. Shelley Duvall showed it to Pee Wee Herman, Pee Wee Herman mm. and the producers about four, about a few minutes into the uh, short. were like, we got to talk to this guy. And Tim says, this is the easiest job I ever got because they'd offered it to mm. me. And I immediately took it because there was, you know, I wanted to do something. Uh, feature film wise and i liked that paul rubens knew concretely who Wee herman was he knew what Wee herman would do and would not do uh, in his movie and it made it a lot easier for me to direct oh, sorry it made it a lot easier for me to direct around that uh to put it together this is also as i said the debut of danny elfman danny elfman we have paul rubens to thank for tim burton and we have paul rubens to thank for danny elfman it was Paul Rubens who was a big Oingo Boingo fan and who um, kind of nudged Tim Burton to go see Oingo Boingo in concert because uh, he wanted him to do the music. Um, Danny Elfman initially turned it down, said he didn't want to do it. He had questions about his ability to score a film, and it wasn't until he got on the phone with Tim Burton and then by the end of the conversation, on a whim, he said yes. And so we have the great Danny Elfman and the great Tim Burton cutting their teeth one as a director one as a composer on this movie and i think that's one of those kind of happy accidents where all these incredibly talented people right at the beginning of their careers come together and create a, a film like this that uh, still endures and that includes phil hartman this is before he got on snl people this is not phil hartman after snl this is phil hartman before snl he goes and does Pee Wee's playhouse for a year leaves because he gets the gig at snl uh so that's something to consider 
in all of this as well. Another talented person connected to the film is the, is the co-screenwriter. So a lot here to consider. Uh, I, I mean, it's crazy to me, these people that are involved. And what's mm -hmm. funny is, like, I, I'm, I'm kind of mentally, it's a terrible thing to do, but ranking how important each of these people are to me. Mm -hmm. And and the the odd thing is, is that the probably the least important in terms of my life is probably Paul Rubens. I mm -hmm. mean, like, I can't begin to tell you how big a Phil Hartman fan I became yeah, yeah. when he was on Saturday Night Live and the voices on The Simpsons and fucking news radio. Yeah. I mean, he and his of all the celebrity deaths. Oh, yeah. That. And probably Robin Williams yep. might be the two most difficult ones for me. Yep. I would agree with that because both one was, you know, uh, a horrible death, a murder uh, from what was clearly a toxic relationship. And the other one is a death from not wanting to confront the horrible things that were happening to him and taking his own life and possibly not even in his own head when yeah. he made that decision. So two incredible comedic geniuses that we lost um, way too early uh, in their lives, for sure. Yeah, it's excellent points well, you bring up here, yeah. Well, and then you go Danny Elfman, and it's like, Danny Elfman, I remember when I remember when I first heard Only, Only a Lad, that album, mm. and it was probably, I was probably a freshman in high school, so it was probably 82 or 83. Yeah. And I, I, I don't even have this experience where you first hear some music and you go, oh, that is not for me. I don't even, I don't, I don't even know if that's music. And then you kind of hear it again and you go, there's something interesting there. And then I obsessively started listening to Oingo Boingo. Mm -hmm. I, cause, and it was so funny cause it's the, the darkness and the sickness mm -hmm. and the sense of humor of Danny Elfman, you know? And so, and I think, I think Danny Elfman changes movie scores. There's no, and it's funny. I remember one of my great teachers in film school really dissed Danny Elfman and said that there was some rumor that he didn't really couldn't really write music and that he he sure. he would play something and then other people would actually do all the instrumentation because he didn't and maybe that was true early in his career maybe it's not true at all I don't I don't really know right. but I remember sitting it was the one thing that this great teacher I had said that I was like nope you don't get it you're wrong Danny Elfman is amazing because you think of all the incredible movie scores yeah, and the sure. Simpsons that we get from Danny Danny Elfman going forward, it's like, yeah. and 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 it's both the scores where it's like that's Danny Elfman. Like you hear, you know, one second of the Batman theme, and yeah. you're like, that's Danny Elfman. And of course, Nightmare for Christmas and all that. But right. then there's also scores like the Goodwill Hunting score, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. which are really profound and don't sound like that. Like yeah. I think he's one of the great guys. Yeah, 100. I agree with you 100. He is one of the great guys um, in terms of modern composers, uh, for sure. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the people who could have been um, in this movie. Oh, uh, okay. First of all, uh, we well let's let's go down the cast list real quick. I want to make sure we click. Obviously, Paul Rubens playing Pew Herman. We'll talk about Paul Rubens in a little bit. As, as I mentioned, Elizabeth Daly playing Dottie. For those of you who may not know Elizabeth Daly, she does go by E.G. Daly sometimes as well. She became a very she she was a singer in the 1980s. She has songs on soundtracks. She was kind of one of these actresses that would pop up in 1980s films in interesting roles, but she became a voiceover actress, and she is the voice of Buttercup from the Powerpuff Girls, mm -hmm. Tommy Pickles from Rugrats, Babe from Babe Pig in the City, uh, and even was Bam Bam in the Fruity Pebbles commercials, and of course, a million other things. Go and check out her resume. A very revered voiceover actress. And we're discussing this, you know, right on the... Uh, sad uh, heels of um, uh, Arlene Sorkin passing away yesterday, who was the original voice of Harley Quinn. 
So, you know, just these these very interesting and phenomenal actresses uh, doing voiceover work uh, that have entertained numerous generations uh, of us here in the world. Uh, Francis, who is the villain of the film, played by Mark Holton. Uh, Diane Salinger plays Simone, the waitress who wants to go to Paris. If you recognize her, she is the uh, wife with Paul Rubens uh, and the mother of Oswald Cobblepot in Batman Returns. Those are those two who are doing that there. Alice Nunn, in her final film role and final acting role, played Large Marge. Um, and uh, Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, told her uh, before the film even screened at a premiere, he said to her, you are going to be the star of the film. They are going to talk about your scene forever. And uh, she said that in an interview before she passed away. Ed Hurley, who plays Francis's dad, who comes in for that uh, chewing gum scene and what have you, Mr. Buxton, he is the original Ed McMahon to Jack Parr on The Tonight Show. Oh, wow. Show. Yes, he originated, in essence, the sidekick on The Tonight Show that Ed McMahon would become, would make famous when he was doing it with Johnny Carson. So that's what he uh, uh, was really well known for. And uh, the um, uh, butler, <laughs> who some of you may recognize if you're deep uh, into professional wrestling, is um, uh, the professor Taru Tanaka. And Tanaka was a big part of the WWF back in the early 1980s. He had a title match with Bruno San Martino. And with Mr. Fuji, he was a three-time winner of the WWF World Tag Team title. So just even a small part like that. And he turned to acting because wrestling had been kind of uh, hurting his body, fracturing his body, and injuring his body so much that he turned to acting was a number of things besides PB's Big Adventure. And finally, Cassandra Peterson plays the biker mama there in that scene with tequila in the biker bar. That is Elvira slash Cassandra Peterson there in that scene uh, as well. But uh, here are people who could have been in the movie. Uh, for Francis, for the villain of the film, they wanted Corey Feldman, but Corey Feldman could not do it because he was shooting... The Goonies uh, mm. at the same time as the film was going on. And here are the five women who auditioned to play Dottie. Auditioned to play Dottie. Lori Laughlin, Laura Dern, wow. Phoebe Cates, Leah Thompson, and Jennifer Jason Lee. Wow. So, I mean, clearly, they were looking for someone to play this role. And somehow Elizabeth Daly beat out all these incredibly talented actresses to land the role so yeah this wasn't just um, like let's grab whoever we can grab you know what, what's interesting about it is yeah. all those are all amazing people right i i don't see anything wrong with eg daly's performance i think she's good and, and what's interesting about her role though man. yeah i mean it's like you know if, this ain't shakespeare that she's <laughs> doing but like what what i think what's interesting about tim burton particularly yeah. this early stage of tim burton yes. is it's the goofy childlikeness of i think she fits well with peewee in oh, a way yeah. that i don't know that laura dern would have right. and i think laura dern is incredible right. you know but i don't know that it would have you know or jennifer jason lee they all have and this is what we talked about with casting before you're not you you know we people think you're looking for the best actress right. or the best actor but you're not you're looking for the person who is the best person to do that thing in that scene you know and she, the sort of sweetness and childlikeness of peewee herman dictates who you're going to have to play against him you know yeah. yeah well let's talk about paul rubens uh steve he did recently pass uh which has been an, uh, an influence for us to do 
the film. Initially, we we're going to do it as an episode, as you mentioned earlier, but we are doing it as a live show here. Do you know that he's a former United States Marine? I had no idea. <laughs> yes, he was dishonorably discharged after four years <laughs> in the Marine Corps. <laughs> after four years? Four years in the Marine wow. Corps. Imagine that. Um, and that's how he got into uh, acting and comedy. It's where he wanted to be. He didn't want to be in the Marines anymore. He just wanted to pursue it. And he left the Marines. He uh, was part of the Groundlings. Uh, and that's where you see a lot of these actors who are in the movie were Groundlings people, including Phil Hartman, with him around the same time. I think uh, the actress who plays Simone Diane Salinger was also part of the Groundlings mm. at the time. So casting people in that uh, arena here to be a part of this um, as well. We do see Phil Hartman in the movie. He has a cameo in the film there as one of the reporters at the end with uh, with uh, Francis. Uh, um, and we also see Tim Burton in the film. If you're an Eagle Eye viewer, he is one of the thugs who confronts Pee Wee in the rain in that noir-esque sequence that uh, Tim Burton directs uh, when Pee Wee has been uh, has run off after he's delivered his three-hour uh, talk about his bike there. Uh, and uh, we, do, we do see Michael Varhol in this as well. He is one of the reporters or one of the photographers rather in one of the scenes as well so everyone getting a little bit of time on the screen but um can, 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 sorry yeah. can we can we just say something about the groundlings because yeah, they're about. so important in comedy history is yeah. that you know it's like original siren live comes out of second city largely yes. you yes. know with a little bit of and then you get sort of the influx of sctv in, from canada right. but like the next the next wave of Saturday Night Live characters and great comedians come out of the groundlings. And it's right. interesting, like one of the things that I sort of, th this is just my take on it, having watched Second City improv and then watched groundling stuff, yeah. is that it always seemed like Second City was built on scenes, like on really, on, on oh, scene yeah, yeah. work yeah, yeah, between yeah, yeah. the characters. Yeah, yeah. yeah, whereas the groundlings was really built on creating a wacky character yeah, and Pee Wee Herman is like a perfect example. And if you think about some of those Phil Hartman characters or Jan Hooks characters, or, you know, like the, those where it's like, it's here is this, or, or it's Pat is like a yeah. perfect example oh, yes. of, of like the character drives the, the, the wackiness of the character drives the comedy rather than the interplay of the scene. Right. And so it's just think that like, it's a really important moment in comedy history and Pee Wee is a perfect example of that is a character. And it's a character so big yeah. that Paul Rubens never, you know, like that is Paul Rubens. You know, that's just it. You'll you know? always connect him to that character. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, what are your, some of your favorite um, sequences in the film, Steve? I mean, there's some interesting adventures that he goes on there at the Alamo because uh, the fortune teller tells him it's the basement of the Alamo. But even his journey to the Alamo he has quite an interesting experience with Simone there and uh, his her crazy boyfriend who chases him all around there with a dinosaur bone and uh, his dealings on the train with that, uh, what you would say is a tramp or hobo, I guess, uh, in the terminology of, the, of that time. Um, and all the things he experiences on his way to realizing that the, uh, there is no basement at the Alamo uh, under Jan Hooks's uh, um, <laughs> tour guide role uh, there, which, by the way, she improvised every line in the movie that you see her do. Seriously, that is none of that is in the script. Jan Hooks improvised his her entire scene scenes in the movie up until the uh, end of her time on the film. Yeah. Oh, that makes it even better. That that her. So I, I guess let's start at the Alamo since we're yeah. there. The the um Jan Hooks's 
I don't know if you've been on that tour, but I have been on that tour. Not at the Alamo, but other tours like this? Yes. Yes. 100%, yes. Well, I have been on the tour at the Alamo. The Alamo <laughs> is a fascinating place. Lots of great history there. But like yeah. when you go like, uh, and you know me, I love history. I love learning stuff. Yeah. But when you go on the tour and they're just like, they're going on. I was on a tour at San Simeon, which is, you know, oh, yeah. uh, Hearst Castle, yeah. and which is a fascinating place. And the tour guide was killing me. And I'm just sitting there going, shit this is a 90 minute tour and i can't there's no you can't get off the ride so the fact that she improvised that is amazing yeah. and we get to one of one of the full laugh out loud moments of the mo movie to me is when he's on the phone he's like no i'm in texas really the stars <laughs> at night are big and bright everyone joins in i can remember being yeah. in the theater and fucking busting a gut that moment <laughs> is so silly and funny that is one of my favorite moments i think i'd have to i'd have to say that i love that moment but i love another moment in the alamo when he is they're trying to get him to remain he's like do you remember anything do you remember your bike do you remember your name do you remember where you are he's like no what do you remember yes. and he goes the alamo and then yeah that that scene broke me when i was watching it yesterday i laughed i had to stop it for about two or three minutes because i was laughing so hard because it comes out of nowhere and a lot of this, the comedy that's great in this film completely comes out of nowhere. And simple stuff and bigger stuff. Like when he's in the magic shop, Mario's magic shop, which mm -hmm. is uh, um, Tim Burton's nod to Mario Baba, who is one of his favorite directors. When mm. he pulls out the ear and he goes, what? What? <laughs> that scene gets me every time. These little things amidst all the weird uh, humor that happens. I love those moments. So there's just so much to enjoy uh, as you walk through this. But there's also a very sweet heart at the center of this, don't you think, Steve? Like, he does love his bike, but the journeys he goes on, he actually likes the people. And and the, the scene that he has with the convict who is bro Julio, I think his name was broken out. The conversations they have are hilarious. I don't know how you don't cast Robert Hegges uh, from uh, uh, Welcome Back, Cotter, Epstein. I don't know how you don't cast him in that role. Would have been perfect. But they're back and forth, him dressing up as a woman to help him get away from that situation. And then them f falling down through the sky, screaming at each other, holding on to each other. It's such funny, weird sequences that happen in this movie that just works so, works so well. But you can tell he has a genuine love and affection for everybody he comes in contact with in the film on his adventures. I think that's totally true. And what I think, I, I, you know, we did our live show on 80s comedies, yes. uh, whenever that was. Yeah, and yeah. one of the things I think we talked about then, and it definitely applies to this movie, is we don't spend a lot of time being silly in movies no. today. Right. Like, just like, yeah, like, of course we know this is silly. That's the point where being really silly. I yeah. mean, like, and the thing I was thinking about, I think this came up when we talked about Beverly Hills Cop, is there's the great Chuck Jones, the animator, his book, um, Chuck Amok. And one of the things that he said that struck me so strongly is that a lot of the comedy is based on comic villains and Daffy Duck being a comic villain. Like he's mm. a he is a selfish, mean, will betray people to get whatever he wants. And then he's continually getting his comeuppance. Same with Wiley Coyote, whereas yeah. Bugs Bunny is a comic hero and that there aren't as many comic heroes. The Tramp is one. Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop is one. And so is Pee Wee Herman. Is right. that Pee Wee Herman is that. When when they put when he's with the convict and then Pee Wee Herman comes up with the beard and the dress and the whole thing, it's like that's full Bugs Bunny. Like yeah. that is a Bugs no, Bunny move. Yes. And, and 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 the thing is, is you go like, oh, and well, and again, it goes to the the childlike sort of 
they don't see the real problems that are coming their way. They just figure they can get out of everything. And Pee Wee, in fact, can. And watching him between like that's a moment where it's like that. Yeah. And fucking tequila, man. Oh man. Tequila is is a spectacular. That is a moment of you know, you could see the groundlings, which is like, I'm gonna do something completely insane and I'm going to commit. 100 percent to it and that is how i'm gonna win but the moment he's in those shoes up on toes yeah man well you have to build to that moment right steve you know i'm, I'm sure you, you can speak about this better than i can you know as a screenwriter you've got to build to that moment you got to earn that scene in the biker bar yep. by having him go through all these um uh adventures and survive and get out of it and have that half man half child approach to the world work to his benefit a majority of the time in all of these adventures he goes on so that by the time he walks in that bar there is a real kind of desperation that he's so close to getting his bike that he is yelling at bikers. he's so unaware that he's yelling at bikers uh to be quiet a little bit of privilege there thinking that he can tell them to well, shut he's up a child yeah he's, he's a child exactly exactly he, yeah and so he tries to get out of the situation uh, and then, um, you know, they're thinking of ways to kill him. And then Cassandra Peterson comes in and then he says one last request, which who gives you a last request? And then randomly he borrows the shoes from one of the people cleaning the tables there who works in the thing. And it works out. And by the way, those are PV, those are Paul Rubin's actual shoes that he had to <laughs> guard off the guy and used. And right out of nowhere, the tequila moment and it 100 percent works. And story wise, it works. Because these are ruffians who are in the bar who claim they own the bar. You jumping up on the second level of the bar, shattering shit and throwing glasses and throwing beer bottles, which is their kind of way of having a good time. It makes sense that you might win them over because you do that. So not only is the sequence funny, it makes sense story-wise because in the first verse, they're not into it, the bikers. It isn't until he jumps to the second bar and starts throwing stuff on the ground and shattering it, that they come around and that makes sense for you. And then you button that scene with him taking off on the bike and running through the billboard and being taken to the hospital uh, with this biker escort. Genius, genius. You know? Well, and, and then you see, you see so much, you can see the beginnings of Tim Burton, you know, yes, like right. I don't, like, I don't think this is like reservoir dogs where you go, you know, there's Tarantino fully formed. Right. I don't, I don't think it's that. But after John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephiles new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Steve, and as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. 
Check out that unique promo code. And for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. The he, you know, he goes to the hospital. Yeah. He has the dream with the the crazy doctors and the, yeah, the that's clouds. all Tim. Yeah, that's all Tim Burton. That's all you Beetlejuice. Know. That's all yeah, totally Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The angled doorways that are kind of off. Yep. All of that is totally uh Beetlejuice. But also, Steve, a, a a earlier in the film when his bike gets stolen, his reaction to it all is something you'd see in Vertigo, uh, a very Hitchcock influenced yep. sequence. Where all the bikes and stuff spinning yep. around him and all that, and him in shadow, all of that works so well. So it's a great mixture of old movie influence along with an, a, an uns, un, how can I say this, a unique perspective in filmmaking that Tim Burton is going to right. show us uh, in the years afterwards and all his projects after that. One thing I do want to say about the Large Marge sequence. That a story that she tells in the truck or in the semi and then later with the bar patron stuff, which is a mm-hmm. great thing that you find out she's a ghost and it's her anniversary. That's like just so perfect. It is based on a song called Phantom 309 from 1967. Country music singer Red Sovine released it as a single that was a pretty big hit at the time. It was number nine on the Billboard country music chart. And the lyrics are essentially the plot of what happens at the truck stop after Large Marge drops off Pee Wee. Uh, and then Tom Waits did a, a remake of this song in the 1970s that probably people know hmm. more. But as, in essence, the story of the song is the entire sequence that Pee Wee goes through. So even something random like that being put into a film like this still works because of the comedic geniuses who are writing the, the script and making it work overall. Well, let, let's talk a bit about Large Marge. Let's talk because- because so first of all her performance is fantastic yes i mean it's just the the ser- and the largeness of her the way they film it and <laughs> yeah. the seriousness of her and just like you 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 walk into this space in the <laughs> mist and what's but what makes that jump scare so good yeah is that there is n- you can't imagine in the movie that you've been watching so far that anything is going to scare you like that. Right. And it right, right. scared the crap out of me. And it is the perfect, maybe more than any other movie, because I'm not a horror movie guy. Yeah. Of having the moment of going being totally caught off guard and then laughing hysterically yeah. because it was so damned. Because even though it is a genuine jump scare, at least to me, right. but it's so silly when you when you realize what you just saw, like <laughs> she just turned into claymation and then you get off the truck. It's just so bizarre. It is. And, you know, she. It, this is the final thing that she did, as I mentioned earlier before, she passed away. She passed away from a heart attack in her apartment in West Hollywood, California, only 60 years old, Steve. Only 60 years old. Uh, but she'd been in things like Wild Wild West, Ironside, Petticoat Junction, Airport 1975, Johnny Get His Gun. He was, She had a small part as Mrs. Callahan and Brian De Palma's The Fury in mm. 1978 uh, and uh, was working with Patricia Percy and Joseph Cotton um, uh, and uh, was in, uh, in Delusion from 1980 and was the maid in Mommy Dearest. A lot of people oh, might wow. forget the large Marge was the maid in Mommy Dearest. Um, so yeah, just a, a fantastic career here for her. Um, and, um, she became a bit of a cult, um, actress, um, uh, until she passed away three years later after the film uh, came out. So just uh, incredible stuff. And the sequence there works so well because of how she plays it 
And then when he turns to see the claymation and the screaming, all of that, it works so well because we just had an animated sequence with all these animals where we just see Pee-wee's animated eyes looking left and right. Yep. And he turns on the light and all those animals are next to him. And then boom, it's dark again um, for an effect. And then we see her coming out of the mist. So it's just so, so smart. These, um, these sequences in the film, they work so well. They don't take you away from the overall narrative of the film because you've dialed into the charm and humor of Paul Rubens as Pee Wee Herman to take you through these sequences. So yeah. Well, and I'll I'll say this: I Tim Burton is not on my list of favorite directors. Okay. I I I I absolutely love him for some of the movies. Yes, right. And I am almost always interested and and curious about what yeah. he's going to do. But the movies right. don't always work for me. But what I do love, and what I think was so important about this, in particular, this movie, Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. Is the oh i don't need to worry about realism i don't need right. to worry about i can take you to a silly place like him i i have no idea if the the animated eyes sequence was in the original <laughs> script yeah, yeah because it so feels like it because tim burton's an animator right it so feels like a tim burton no no we can go to this completely ridiculous place yeah and and trust me that i'm i'm gonna make it worth it and when tim burton's movies work they work really really well mm -hmm. and and they and you instantly know you're in a tim burton movie right, right away you know right. right well again the coming together of these young artists at the right time and having a canvas where they could show you what they can do they had the license to show you what they could do there's there's so many reasons this film should have failed but it succeeded because people brought their talent to bear and had a feeling they could create what they wanted to create and make it work. And it did. And it also shows you that there is a taste for this um, with the right audiences, if you can get it right. And that audiences are always willing to try new things um, if you can get through to them. And this is one of the most unusual films, even though, it, you know, it's funny, Steve, it has the same, it's like, it's very much a 1980s film. Yet it's very much not a 1980s film and works so well um, in both of those arenas it, it, when you're looking at the film and judging it. Um, I do want to say, oh, we got a stream lab that came through here from Wiley. Uh, Todd, what's up, Wiley? Good to see you. Thank you, Wiley. He said, quick question. Would you guys ever do another Beatles film? I'm currently going through the Beatles entirely for the first time in my life. Oh, my God. Congratulations. Going through the albums and movies would love more conversation on them. Thanks. Well, um, we did do Hard Day's Night, yep. right? And we did it with Scott. Is that correct? We did it with Scott. We did. We did it with Scott. So that's that's when we did. Scott, Steve, and I reviewed Get Back uh, on my channel, on the Outlaw Nation channel. Oh, that's so right. Yeah. If you want to see that review, you can just type in that and, and find it on the Outlaw Nation Wiley, which I know you're a subscriber to. Um but yeah, I would love to do either Help or uh, Yellow Submarine as an interesting experiment down the road for sure. Because I don't think Help is as bad as people think, and I don't think Yellow Submarine is as bad as people think. Uh, I, so I'd be open for it if Steve would be. Open for it. Uh, look, I love the Beatles, and 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 I haven't seen Help in a really really long time. Mm. I watched Yellow Submarine with Jax maybe three years ago. It is really interesting. It is uh, well. I mean, what's funny is, I don't mean that in a negative way. Right, right, you know, right, right. I mean that in like, what a weird movie, and it's really weird that like I watched it as a kid yeah. a ton, yeah. 
and didn't see it as weird. It was just what it was. And it's funny that you bring up uh, Wiley, that you bring up that when we're talking about this movie, because yeah. again, the Beatles are silly. You know, they, yes, they, they right. have senses of humor and they yeah. enjoy their silliness. Um, uh, the, the, so I, I would totally do it. I actually think maybe they would make great live shows rather than kind of going moment through moment because we could just talk about the joy of the songs and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I know for a damn certainty that Scott Mance would kill us if we did a Beatles movie without him. Yeah, there would be genuine hurt, hurt feelings there. So we just have to keep that in mind. I hate you both. You're dead to yeah. me. Yeah, no, no, you're not. I love you. I love you. But I'm, I'm angry. Uh, but, yeah. but, but put me on the show. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think Help would be an interesting live show. Although I don't know how many people would tune in, to be honest with you. But we yeah. could explore it. I think Yellow Submarine could be a fun cinephiles after dark Ooh. like steve and i getting a little drunk maybe making this episode just for our patrons at a certain level and above mm. and we just sit here and talk about the absolute weirdness of it yellow submarine and try to find symbolism and meaning and uh whatever might be coursing through this movie that could be a fun thing to explore down the road for us for sure so i i'd be down for that um, all right. Um, let's see. So let's talk about Paul. Ru well, let's first let me say this. Uh, the movie was made for $7 million. That's a uh, big adventure. It ended up grossing between 40 and $45 million, depending on who you talk to here. Uh, so pretty good profit for a $7 million film, Steve, for sure. More than two and a half times. That's for sure. Um, uh, but in the end, uh, we should move over to talk about Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens. What are your thoughts on Paul Rubens? What is your feeling about him in this role and how he brings to life this character that makes it work in a film like this can i ask you a question first sure did you because you were you were just slightly younger than me a few years mm. did you watch peewee's playhouse i am 35 years old <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> i did watch peewee's playhouse yes i did See, i i didn't and i think that because i you know like i was in high school yeah and uh and and you know I I'm not sure when Pee Wee's Playhouse premiered, but it was right uh, after the movie. It was right after okay. the movie. CBS. So so like I probably watched yeah because I think for people who grew up with Pee Wee's Playhouse and mm -hmm. you know so like I know Mike Vogel and you know that they're, they're all you know a few years younger than us. Yes, like right. Pee Wee is huge oh, for yeah. me a little less because for me the biggest point was this movie. Of course, I watched Big Top Pee Wee, but it's not a terribly good movie yeah. and would see him. And whenever he popped up, it was always fun. But in the end, it was this character. But I didn't spend as much time with him because I didn't grow up watching Pee Wee's Playhouse. Right. Oh, no. I think for me, it was massive in my life because I did watch Pee Wee's Playhouse after this movie. And I was right around that age where I could like kind of still indulge myself a little bit in getting up on a Saturday morning and watching it over my Cheerios or whatever. Cause I think that's right when it was on a Saturdays, I think eight or 9 AM in the morning, you could sit and watch. And so many incredible actors I got exposed to without knowing I was being exposed to them. Right. When I was watching Pee Wee's Playhouse, Lawrence Fishburne uh, in there, Phil Hartman in there, S. Epitha Merkerson, who is some of you law and order people may know. Um, but here's two things that I discovered. Here's two people that I discovered who were production assistants on Pee-wee's Playhouse uh, that I did not know were production assistants on Pee-wee's Playhouse. John Singleton, of all people, mm. was a production assistant. So that's how he knows Lawrence Fishburne. Exactly. 
three or four years later, he does Boys in the Hood. So he was right at the tail end of of peewee's playhouse because it only ran i think from 86 to 89 um and rob zombie of all people was a part of peewee's playhouse which i think makes all the sense in the world totally right when you look at some of the horror influences of tim burton on the peewee peewee's big adventure but then how peewee how uh, paul rubens carried some of that forward into peewee's playhouse so rob zombie an unusual horror movie director to say the least maybe influenced by some of the stuff that he uh, had experienced doing there on Pee-wee's Playhouse. Well, and I think, I think people underestimate, particularly day. I know I've said this before, but that when we grew up cartoons and kids stuff was dark, you know, it was very violent. It was very cruel frequently, particularly if you get, you know, Wile E. Coyote or battles between Popeye and Bluto or whatever, it got into some stuff, you know, and is that today that's not really very true, but like the, and Disney stories are dark. And right. like there is an edge to Pee Wee, and from the Pee Wee's Playhouse, I did watch, which isn't a ton. That right. didn't go away. Like he didn't. Right. It didn't right. just become sweet and loving. It was like no, there was some stuff in there, yeah. and because because you can't lie to kids. Like you can't. You, you can tell them, look, everything is great, and everyone resolves other conflicts, and there's no. But no, life is actually shitty and hard sometimes. Yeah. And people can be mean or mean spirited, and blowing stuff up can be fun and like you know like that like and i think peewee is a part of that yeah that worked really well yeah yeah and i, I like that i like the message in the movie through peewee right like at the beginning certainly it's not great that he's obsessed with this bike but it means something to him so he's going to find a way to get it no matter what it takes right he's he has a goal that he wants to achieve and he's working hard to get it Later, when he has the scene, and look, you can take the microcosm of stuff. When he gets up in, gets up in the morning, he gets up happy to be alive, yep. happy to mm-hmm. enjoy the world. He, he gets up, he lifts some weights for about three seconds, and plays with his toys. So he, you know, kind of dials into the joy of life. Has the breakfast made for him. Comes down the pole like Batman and changes from pajamas into his suit, uh, and then eats a little bit, and then rolls on throughout his day. And goes to the places where he wants to go and enjoy himself and have fun in his life. But later on, after the bike is stolen, when he goes on this journey, he is learning lessons from everybody he comes in contact with. And then he has this wonderful moment with Simone where he's sitting there selling, telling her, look, your dreams aren't going to come find you. You've yep. got to go out and make it happen. You've got to go and pursue the things you love. And it's such a great scene between him and Diane Salinger, even with the sexual innuendo that is bubbling. That is, you know, the boyfriend is listening and hearing something completely different. It's still great uh, to hear him talk about her big butt and getting through her big butt and her saying how she's never had it put to her quite that way. Uh, all of that works still as um, an inspirational scene. And then later we see that she is going off to right. pursue her dreams right when his dreams look like they're about to shatter with his bike after the Alamo situation. So it's so such an interesting thing to see. By the way, those, those gags, those yeah. double entendres are the perfect kid friendly double yes. entendres. Yes. Because yeah. if you're old enough to understand the joke, uh, it's fine. And if you're not old <laughs> enough to understand the joke, the scene works perfectly well. By the way, one thing we haven't talked about oh, yeah. is the James Brolin, Morgan Fairchild. Oh, yes. Of it all. yes. We should talk about I think I, you know what movie I think inspired them, and I have no evidence for this, although I'm 100% sure that it's true, what? is Blazing Saddles. Oh, Blazing probably. Saddles, 
ends up in a big action sequence at the movie studio right. in a big chase and then ends up watching the movie of the movie right. with the actors of the movie you know like and by the way one undersung moment of paul rubin's true acting ability <laughs> is him playing the world's worst you know small part in his own movie and having his voice dubbed it is perfect bad acting well, it's ironic because his first film role was in that Cheech and Chong movie as a hotel front desk receptionist. Oh, is so, it? Oh, yes, I had no so idea. So to do it again here in a different format, a different uh, hotel, because clearly it's a different outfit. The 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 looks into the the two looks into the camera, fucking genius. Just that's Perfect. how you do it. He's so stiff, and then looks, uh, uh, and then moves. <laughs> just it's so smart at how he played that so well, especially when you've got to do it against James Brolin, who who loves chewing up the scenery, and Morgan Fairchild, who was, you know, just Morgan Fairchild. In that Morgan, yeah, I miss I miss having a Morgan Fairchild show up on my episode of The Love Boat or whatever. <laughs> Her and the Lander sisters, man. You can never go wrong yep. with the Lander sisters and Morgan Fairchild in your show. Um, but yeah, and obviously that influenced what we saw later in um, Austin Powers, when you had right. Danny DeVito and Tom Cruise and Gwyneth Paltrow playing austin powers and dr evil and um uh and was it heather graham in that one i forget i don't remember it, but yeah, graham, it, yes. yeah 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 can, can i ask a quick question on yeah. a different topic just you brought up have you watched a cheech and chong movie as an adult or in a long no, time i don't think i've watched it as an adult i mean i guess technically i was over 18 when i watched a couple oh, of movies, I, yeah but nothing recently no because i watched up in smoke because uh, it was like on showtime yeah, so yeah. whenever it was on, I just watched it again. I watched it over and over again. I listened to the Cheech and Chong album with the whole Dave joke. And there, there yeah. was a song. And now I can't remember what the song is, but it was hilarious. And I have not watched a Cheech and Chong movie in 30 years. At, you know, and I'm now I'm suddenly going, would that hold up? Would that be a good know. thing? The Cinephiles After Dark may have a second episode to do there you with go. The Cheech and Chong up in smoke movie for sure uh let's see uh we had one super chat that came through vincent zawada saying ed wood future episode love the show steve ed wood would you consider that one i don't know i saw it once in the theater mm -hmm. i liked it i didn't love it as much as everyone else this also was as i've said before when i was in film school where i was probably my most negative about movies yeah i remember martin landau being amazing yes um i mean my, probably my favorite tim burton movie is still beetlejuice um what about oh, yeah. you what's your feeling on edward i mean i think i would consider it because i think it's a nice commentary on hollywood it certainly features a fantastic uh, performance from johnny depp and um martin landau uh and so i would consider it because i think there's a niche factor to this movie and a kitsch factor to this movie that would be fun to explore plus one of the greatest uh orson wells yeah. uh scenes you're ever going to see in that uh, diner scene with him and uh ed wood uh, i think d'onofrio plays him so good so yeah i would absolutely consider plus it's a black and white movie yeah so there's something uh to comment on the artistry of choosing to go black and white with that so yeah I'd, I'd be up for it uh down the road but yeah we haven't done any is this our first tim burton film this is our first tim burton film yeah. we didn't do 1989's batman we haven't done that one i thought no we, we we so we, you don't remember this exchange i don't remember this exchange Tell so my COVID brain, tell me what what, what do we? I I uh, had uh, we had my son's half brother because oh, Jax right. is offered over. Now I remember. And I was watching it with them yeah. because something had just happened that brought it up. And I don't remember why. Oh, because we were gonna go see 
the flash the flash and so so i wanted them to know who michael keaton was we got 30 minutes in they hated it hated it and i didn't particularly like it either wow first tim burton film yeah we we need to rectify that steve beetlejuice i'm happy to do beetlejuice anytime you want to do beetlejuice i I love that movie so i it might be i might be open to that very very uh uh, soon whenever we want to do it brother for sure so so we got a lot of plans we got a cheech and chong (laughs) after dark we got uh what was the other one you said we're gonna do after oh yellow submarine yeah no submarine and now we got beetlejuice it's the schedule (laughs) it's just filling up I love that. We'll have to run it by the advisory council and see what they say when we meet with them next week, for sure. Um, Two things to tell you. 10 to 12 bikes were used as Pee-wee's bike in the movie. Um, They were from a bike shop in Norwalk. Does that sound right to you, California, Norwalk? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so um, someone sold the original bike uh, a few years ago. They were looking to get maybe $15,000. They got $36,000. Uh, in an auction for the bike so that tells you the level of love people have and here's something that i did not know about the movie and of course some of these facts i certainly did not know but siskel gene siskel hated this movie hated the movie he put it on his top 10 worst films of 1985 roger ebert refused to watch the movie until 1987 so, mm-hmm. you know, your revered critics sometimes, even they were like, I am not going to waste my time watching a film and doing a review of it. It's not for me. So Ebert, though, did like the movie and understood why people might enjoy it and did think it was a good comedy. So Siskel did not enjoy the film when it first came out and wrote a scathing review of it. It's, it's a, I think it's an 85 or 88% on Rotten Tomatoes with the old reviews being factored in but there were some reviews that were not positive about the movie overall but certainly the fact that it made 40 to 45 million dollars uh, on its run lets you know that the audiences were behind it for sure and sadly the sequel wasn't as good although it did feature the um feature film debut of benicio del toro in the movie as wolf oh. boy or whatever uh and i did not see Wee's big holiday which was the 2016 netflix film so but there are some great Pee Wee Herman scenes if you want to watch some of the stuff he would do on The Tonight Show right. or on um, uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel's show or the one short SNL digital short he did all these years later going back to SNL because he was rejected by SNL, which is why he created Pee Wee Herman and started. Oh, the I didn't know that. Show. Yes, he did not get accepted by SNL. And that's what influenced him to create a one man show around the Pee Wee Herman show. Which he was, which he did around town in L.A., which is what eventually got him into do Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So all these years later, he went back and did an SNL digital short with Andy Samberg. And if you guys haven't mm. watched that, that is funny as hell, and it goes in an R direction uh, that I think is is just genius in how they use the humor. Anderson Cooper is in it in a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very weird where him and Pee Wee Herman and Andy Samberg. Uh, get shot, start taking shots on New Year's Eve, and they end up in the craziest places. So it it's well worth your watch, uh, for sure. Um, Steve, anything more we need to discuss on this movie? Anything more we need to say about Paul Rubens or Pee Wee Herman or the the movie itself? Um, I think he is a unique human, you know, mm. who uniquely did the thing that he did, and there is some compromise there's some controversy about him i don't know if that's the thing you want oh, to get yeah. into we should actually we should address that for sure um 
Some people responded on our Facebook post, Steve, and said they didn't want to support uh, uh, pedophilia or child predators and whatever. And certainly Steve and I had a conversation about uh, when we were considering doing this as an episode, um, some of the things that uh, popped up in, in Paul Rubin's second arrest. Um, but I don't know. It's weird because when you see the level and outpouring of love and um, – genuine affection people had for Paul Rubens and his explanation for those accusations uh, that he did later, although it may be up to you to decide how much you believe his explanations for that. It certainly is something that uh, does tarnish his legacy. Both of those arrests tarnish his legacy for sure. And we cannot leave out Danny Elfman who is dealing with his own accusations recently of sexual harassment and um, settlements from years past of him assaulting uh, a woman uh, her accusing him of assaulting her and him not paying the money that he had said he was going to pay her so um you know just some stuff around tim burton and his universe certainly johnny depp uh, who was in a number of tim burton films and his the stuff that he's dealt with uh, for sure so yeah just um what can you say i, I, I don't know I've been thinking about how to talk about this kind mm. of stuff because it's really hard it's really yeah. hard and the the so first of all obviously and we should say right from the outset that you know a child predator or pedophilia these are horrible horrible terrible crimes and i mean frankly i know two people who are the victims of this kind of thing and have had conversations with them and this is horrible horrible shit yes the the first the first arrest of paul rubens is not for that no you know the first arrest look i you know pornography exists all over the place right now you can get it wherever you want but there was a time where people went to movie theaters yes you know and the and as i remember when we did taxi driver and like they go to those movie theaters yes yes i thought you were going in a different direction and i was like oh my god (laughs) you got did you get scared am i how am i how much this is this is a difficult this is a difficult line to walk and i'm going to try to do my best to walk it yes where like dudes went to movie theaters and 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 did things there and that was a thing i don't necessarily have a problem with pornography you know people looking at pornography as long as people have consent I, I and, and my understanding is that he was just a guy at a porn place who it was. Yeah. And so like that to me is not that wasn't involving children. That wasn't involving right. it was himself, you know, and like right. it seems gross to me, but whatever. I don't care that much. Yeah. The other one, I don't know the truth. Like, yeah. I, I don't right. know. Like he says he has this large collection of a whole bunch of weird stuff mm-hmm. that he is not. He didn't have it was pictures from th- that were old. that were antiques. And, and here is, and, and if he in fact did anything with children or, or used modern pictures of children or supported people who were doing those kinds of things or underage, fucked up game yeah. over. Yeah, that's yes. it. hundred yeah. percent. But if he had, I mean, I know people that have collections of weird shit, including weird erotic shit, mm-hmm. you know, and if you're in, and, and it's very clear, it's no question in my mind that Paul Rubens was into weird stuff. Probably. He, yeah. He was weird and just collecting weird stuff isn't necessarily so terrible. It's, 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 in particularly if it's old stuff, like these yeah. kids, you know, like the picture that he had was like of two boys or something was from a long time ago. So I will tell now a personal story okay. that is what I was thinking of. So it has nothing to do with child pornography, pornography of any kind, but this is the story. My grandmother 
was living the jet set life back in the fifties and sixties and traveled to Africa and Asia and all those places and wow. brought back stuff. When you walked into her house, when I was yeah. a kid, yeah, where in the entryware where there, you would think there would be like a nice Persian rug. She had a zebra skin rug, mm. a dead zebra. Whoa. And it was, you know, a rug. And that's just like someone would have a bear skin rug or some other skin rug. She had a zebra skin rug. She also had what she had bought in Japan, a statue of a, a Japanese fisherman that I absolutely loved. And every time I was in her house, I would pick it up and look at it because I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Right. And it was carved out of ivory. Oof. And this is the thing is that I have am at. I am disgusted by the hunting and poaching of elephants for right. their ivory. It is absolutely terrible. We've hunted all these animals to, to extinction. And yet I love that statue. Yeah. And this is it. This is the, the statue oh, of there a it Japanese is. fisherman oh, wow. that my grandmother had that's carved out of ivory. Okay. Now, today, this would be a crime. Yes. It My grandmother already had it. You know, she had yeah. bought it 70 years ago or something. Yeah. And now I have it. And it's like, how am I supposed to feel? How should one feel about that object? Right. You know, like I don't, am I supporting the killing of elephants by having that on my mantle or am I holding a, an object that I think is really beautiful? I still love this little statue and, and as a memory of my grandmother and as of history and as of a thing that doesn't exist. And I don't have an answer to the question, right. but the, I was thinking about it in terms of the Paul Rubens thing is there all sorts of there people that collect Nazi weapons and guns. There's people that collect torture devices. There's people that collect all sorts of weird shit that is connected to evil practices of a long time ago. That doesn't necessarily mean me, me owning this certainly doesn't mean I believe in killing elephants. Right. So right. I don't know. That's why I say, I don't know what the truth of Paul Rubens is. And I was trying to think of a way to get my head about it. And I'll go back to the first thing I said was if he was actually involved actively involved in child pornography or pedophilia in some way fuck that guy you know that's that is one of the most terrible things but if it was he was collecting a whole bunch of different stuff and that was one of the things in the collection i don't necessarily feel the same way about it that's that's how i've tried to get my head around it i think that's fair you know there's a there's uh, interviews you can read there's research y'all can do if you want to figure out where you feel where you land on this. I, 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 yeah, I, for me, it was a bit unsettling the first time I started looking into this kind of stuff. And then later when yeah. I read more stuff there, it's a lot, it's very, how can I say this? It's very great. It's kind of fuzzy about what the intentions were here, right. how this was exposed and what he actually had. And so, because there's still a lot of questions about it, uh, I think for me, I, couldn't fall on one side of this issue or another because I don't have enough information about it. But I will say and reiterate what Steve said. However, if he did have uh, uh, pornography, child pornography or underage uh, pictures of naked uh, uh, teenagers, uh, that is the, the bridge too far. And that is yeah. absolutely abhorrent and should not happen. Whether it's, art uh, whether it's artistic or not, I don't care about shadows and lighting if the whole point of you having it is to uh, sexually turn you on. That isn't yep. the point that you should be having something like that for. So I think that's where I would I would come down on this whole situation uh, for sure. So, yeah. But we felt we should address it, which I'm glad Steve brought up because we want to be fair to that as we do on the Cinephiles. 
yep. uh, when we talk about anybody who might be uh, difficult for us at, uh, or had done difficult things in the past. Um, all right, there are no more Streamlabs or Super Jets. Steve, I don't think I have anything more to say about the movie other than it still holds up. It's still a lot of fun. Uh, and it features some wonderful performances, some great writing, some great comedy, and some nice life lessons about how you should appreciate the people around you rather than just become so obsessed with an animate object. Um, any final words on this? Um, no, I think, you know, like I, I hate ending on a bit of a bummer, which I feel like we did. Okay. But I should also feel like, you know, that, that, uh, that this goes into this thing we talked about a long time for a long time now of, and it goes to what Kim Masters said a long time ago when mm. we had her on the show was her feeling is you don't take the art off the walls. And it's right. that we can talk about these issues with Tim, uh, with Paul Rubens. We could talk about issues with Danny Elfman and I can still like Oingo Boingo and I can still enjoy watching this movie. Yeah. But we, what we shouldn't do is hide those negative things or try to push them under the rug, pretend they don't exist. I don't think that's the right thing either. So I, you know, my, my final feelings is that this is a unique movie that has a wonderful feeling of child, childlikeness and silliness and that it was very, very fun to revisit. Absolutely. Well, there you go. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us for this live episode of the Cinephiles, a.k.a. the Cinephiles Live, uh, where we dived into 1985's uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, a film that was successful back then. And I think, in my personal opinion, a film that still holds up now in 2023 in terms of the comedy and the overall joy and the innocence in this film here uh, and how it approaches the world. And certainly a film considering how much craziness there is in the world it might be a, a much needed tonic for any of you who have not revisited in quite some time and maybe our show influences you to do so we shall see um all right uh, steve uh, what final things do we have to tell them before we wrap up my friend uh i'm at sr morris you're at, at the roca says we are at the cine at cine underscore files on twitter the cinephiles podcast on instagram of course there's all the places to subscribe i just got an email saying that stitcher knows longer no longer exists so you can't subscribe there anymore oh. but you still can with spotify and youtube and apple podcast where we'd love your reviews and of course patreon.com slash the cinephiles where we've already talked about all the great things that are going on there and if you want to buy or stream uh peewee's big adventure along with every other movie we've ever we've ever reviewed my mouth is getting tired out uh you could do it at cinephiles.net all right there you go well thank you all so much for joining us again have a wonderful rest of your weekend and we'll talk to you next time on another brand new episode of the cinephiles live from my partner steve morris i'm john roca take care be well Thank you.